Good morning, church. If you would please open with me to Zechariah, chapter 9. As you might already hear in my voice, I have a disclaimer. I've got some kind of head cold happening. Um, Try not to make it a head case, but you never can tell. So I'm going to try to slow down my cadence so I don't cough all over you, but I don't want to put you to sleep with that either. So bear with me as I uh, just try to deal with just kind of all the nonsense going on in my head. Zechariah chapter 9 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus, Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confused. Confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall become a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. So that none shall march to and fro, no no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God shall sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. 
For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Lord, we ask that we would come to you expecting. And I ask, as I asked earlier this morning, I ask in two ways, Father. If we are in need of comfort, we ask that we would experience your comfort. But Lord, also, if we are in need of challenging because of our own pride and rebellion towards you, Father, I pray that we would be challenged by you. But Lord, ultimately, all of us need to be comforted and challenged. Comforted in our discouragements and our sorrows, but also challenged so unbelief doesn't win out when we're faced with despair. So we will have faith to trust you and ultimately to see Jesus. Jesus, we want to see you exalted as king. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Held that the entire reading of that passage. All right. Uh, Wow. Here we go. Uh, The the purpose, you know, of a difference between a, a microscope and telescope a microscope, you're looking at small things and making them appear big, but a telescope takes things really far away and brings them near so we see how great they are. When you look at the moon in the sky, it's one size. When you use a telescope to see it, you bring it near to see its glory. And, and there's a wow component to that. The prophecies, we're beginning in, this, in our study of this book, uh, from chapter 9 all the way through the rest of the book, chapter 14, it's oracles. It's, it's the mighty sayings of God himself. But what God does with all the promises that he makes, he's looking into the future of when Jesus would be revealed. We're going to see in this chapter, in his first advent, his incarnation of becoming, that we celebrate every Christmas, he's a baby, born a man, in a stable, and grows perfect life, lives the life all of us are supposed to live, and dies our death so we might have his resurrection life. But then there's a promise that he will appear again. So God is taking all, remember, all the night visions that we studied in in Zechariah, all of them point to Jesus. So now we're looking at these promises as a telescope. God God is telescoping the Messiah for us, taking us up to the eyepiece so we can look through that to see Jesus far off. Remember, we want it to have an effect today because God gives us blessing of future hope so we can, it can sow hope into our lives today as we looked at last week. The oracles that make up the rest of the book that Zechariah gives, gives a depth of hope that we can withstand all onslaught in our lives, both spiritually and physically, because God promises his people a king, a king that would not be like any other king they had known or even heard about. He would rule and reign over the things that we see as well as all the things we never pay attention to. His rule is to the ends of the earth, we see in verse 10. An enormous reach of his reign is into the hearts of all who will call on him for salvation. God promised a king to rule and reign over the hearts of his people. Now this chapter, as well as the rest of the book, brings us to that eyepiece, God's telescope, to see Jesus, our Messiah. Now our greatest good 
is to see the glorious Messiah and yield to his eternal reign over our lives. It's not, it's not just one thing to see him. We need to respond to what we're seeing. And the proper response to what we're seeing is submission, yielding ourselves, surrender. God, you own me. You're my king. May Jesus come near to us this morning so we can see him with the eyes of our hearts. Now, the first section of this uh, chapter, verses 1 through 8, are judgments over Israel's common enemies. Throughout their existence, they had dealings with all the cities that were mentioned because all these cities are mentioned throughout the history of, of Israel after they came out of Egypt even before. Now, the justice God brings is he's bringing a justice on Israel's enemies to both comfort and encourage them to let them know that evil will not win out in the end. He will win. Now, remember, we shouldn't wish for his judgment. We shouldn't wish for God's judgment over enemies. His enemies, like Jonah, wished for God's judgment. He didn't want to go to Nineveh to tell them to repent because he wanted God to annihilate the Ninevites for what they had done. Now, he had to learn through his experience in those four short chapters, he had to learn that we shouldn't wish judgment, but we should be hopeful for repentance. The nations and cities listed were not not at this point, present enemies, but they represented Israel's partnerships and treaties and compromises from the past. God is showing a special interest in Jerusalem as opposed to all the other nations. He's saying, I take delight in what I'm doing in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Now, it is right for God to judge nations. And today, we believe he does that. Now, we don't wish his judgment upon nations, but he does. Why does he do that? He judges them, one, for picking on his people. He also judges them for not honoring him as the only true God. See, every image bearer of God is responsible to forsake pride and honor God as sovereign ruler and king. Sadly, man is locked into a prison of pride because of sin that only God can rescue him from. Only if they repent and trust him for salvation. God will judge every man and woman, this is the judgment that comes. Are you trusting in a personal righteousness to be accepted by him? Or are you trusting in an alien righteousness, a Christ righteousness to be accepted by him for salvation? Now, the detail that's shown in these eight verses is hugely particular. Just like we, a few years ago when we went through the book of Daniel and we saw Daniel chapter 11 and how, how there were so many accurate things that were described uh, people thought that somebody wrote it after the fact as a, as a historical account and put it in Daniel as a, a prophetic insight. But that's, some people have thought the same thing about this because it's amazingly accurate because Zechariah is predicting an invasion route of Alexander the king, the king, the great. He's not the king. Might be the great. The prophecy Zechariah made as judgment on the sinful and proud nations follows a north to south. Remember, it's Mediterranean Sea, Here's Israel, then we have uh, um, Persia this way, present-day Iraq, Iran. Look, Ukraine's right there. That's been in the news. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Ukraine's right there. Do you know where it is? There's been battle. Tsars uh, of Russia, Ottoman Empire, they've been going at it. A lot of history that we don't know because we're still a very young nation. Uh, the north-south, Alexander the Great's chasing Darius. 
Darius flees back to Susa. Instead of chasing him, he says, I'm going to go down the coast to secure the coast. And he went down the coast and all the way to Egypt. But on those coast cities, that's what are listed. And he took one after the other. And he came to, he came, he, he, quick work of Damascus, which is in Syria, uh, quick work of Sidon. But then he comes to Tyre, and there's a lot said about Tyre. And Tyre and Sidon has been always um, a temptation and represented a temptation to God's people. Tyre was a well-fortified city. It was actually an island city. They built the city out on an island. It was on the mainland, but they built it a half mile off the island. Uh, it, is, it was said to have 150-foot-high walls all the way around the island. Nebuchadnezzar tried to attack and defeat Tyre for 13 years. Couldn't do it until he finally made a treaty, and that treaty spilled over into the Persian Empire. They adopted that treaty as well. So Tyre is off the coast, its own fortress, impenetrable, so they think. They think we're never going to be annihilated by anybody. Hold on a second. You shall, she shall be devoured by fire. This is a judgment on the people of Tyre that they don't probably will never believe. Alexander the Great came in 332 BC. Took the old city. He actually went. His custom was to go and sacrifice. If there was a treaty, he wanted he wanted to sacrifice in the temple of their god. He tells Tyre that. Tyre says, there's a temple in the old city on the mainland. You can just go sacrifice there. We're all good. He says, no, that's not how I do it. So then he takes the, he, he raises the old city and all the rubble he uses to build a causeway over that half miles. And he was building that causeway with all his catapults, sending it over, sending it over. He calls, because he waited, he went back to side and he gets his, his ships from Macedonia to come over from Greece and there, seven months, he took Tyre down. Quick work of Tyre. Then he went down to Gaza. Made quick work of Gaza. Goes, in, goes into Egypt, and Egypt was like, hey, we like you. We don't like Darius, so let's be friends. We're going to submit to your rule. It was easy for him. The prophecy was a warning to those cities. They were on God's map because of their pride. They would be laid low. But the section closes with a peculiar promise. Rather than total destruction, and we see this in verses 7 and 8. Rather than total destruction of Gaza and Ashdod, a mixed people shall dwell there. He says he's going to do a work in them. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. Uh, Part of Philistine worship was the eating of blood of, of the sacrifice. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to rescue their worship. And what's he going to do? Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. God's promising something to them. He, he wants a remnant. It too shall be a remnant for our God. But this should really, this is the like Jonah also. God is sovereign, and he's the sovereign ruler of all peoples, but his salvation extends to all people, no matter their path with him or his people. And we fit in that category. 
God calls all people to him, and he will provide a remnant. Now, there's also a component with the listing of these. I think there's a spiritual component that God's preserving the hearts of his people. While there was a message for Israel's enemies, there's also a message for God, God's people in the warnings, and I think we, we have uh, application ground in them. God reminded his people that whomever they follow after, rather than him, would come to swift destruction. Anytime God's people make a, 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 a treaty, a partnership with something that is not him, he's saying, be careful because my judgment will come on their pride and it will be laid low and you're going to get sucked up in that destruction. But let's be careful about the treaties that we make. At, at different points in Israel's past, the kings and the people made treaties with those nations, which required them to adopt certain points of the lifestyle and the worship of those nations. These treaties were in defiance of God's command to not mix with the nations around them that's found in Joshua. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God as you have done this day. Here's what happened, though. God took too long for God's people. So they went somewhere else to find the answer to their longing. Usually that was in sacrifice to fertility gods to send rain to their crops. Israel made treaties with the northern territories in Tyre and also in Philistia, which is Gaza. Each time it eroded their worship of God, causing them to wander in their identity. They, were, they had identity crisis after identity crisis because they were wandering from God's promises and the book of his law. And God's sending a clear message in order to preserve the hearts of his people in the future from those unholy relationships. Also, I think we see preserve his people from materialism that Tyre represents and from false worship that Philistia represents. We need to have a heads up on these as well. What about these unholy relationships? God's people made relational compromises in attempt to acquire quick success. If I can, if I, I need a successful crop, God's taking too long, there's no rain, where else can I go? We can, if we are not careful, we can acquire a definition of success that is ungodly and unbiblical, which then causes us to compromise with things around us. We must pay attention to our craving for success. This area uh, of this northern area was also associated with Baal worship, which the biggest form of Baal worship was child sacrifice. In, in thinking through this for us parents, we must be aware that we don't sacrifice our relationships with our children, or even toward our children, in attempt for us to be successful or for them to be successful. We can drive our kids academically. We can drive them athletically when we see some type of gifting. But we have to beware they could end up not loving God at all because their definition of success was not God wrought. It was in you. It was in us. Do we want our kids to do well? Absolutely. Do we want to give their best? Yes. But the, the giving their best is not to achieve some reward 
the man-made successful reward. We want them to do their best as a reflection that God has their all. And he's worthy of our all. He's worthy of our minds. He's worthy of our, our physical lives. He's worthy of our hearts. But we can also sacrifice our families on the altar of promotion. On trying to make that particular paycheck a certain amount, we will, we will sacrifice our families for that. We sacrifice our families as we seek um, this weird component of I need my own time. And so my own successful life looks like I get together with my friends a particular time or I just have alone time. And so when I'm home, I'm not home yet. These are warnings, church. We can also enter unwise relationships with others to gain success or prominence or favor. If that's a, a, a connection, a business connection, we need, to be, we need to be careful. We need to be, what does Jesus tell us to be in the world? As wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We need to preserve that. I would also put in there. An un unholy relationship is our fascina fascination and, and our entrapment with media. If there are shows that keep us up at night because we have to watch three or four episodes of them, but we can't find time to read our Bibles, something's wrong, church, and it's a warning. It's, it, we have to make sure our ears are God's, too. Our eyes are God's. Now, I think Tyre represents a materialism because it was a wealthy city. All in Israel's history, everybody looked to Tyre as that's how you make money. They were the wealthiest city in probably the entire Mediterranean Sea, on, on the coastline everywhere. And its wealth produced a pride which resulted in a false sense of security. Look, they had so much stuff, they were wise, but look, built herself a rampart, silver, heaped up silver like dust, fine gold like the mud of the streets. They had so much. So what was the effect? Isolation, building walls. You know, our, our craving for money to get us stuff or the stuff that we want creates those walls and it blocks us from experiencing God's presence. Materialism is all around us. And it's seeking to draw us behind its massive walls with the promise of invincibility. And that's why Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he's all dependent upon himself. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. Or you cannot serve God and what you think money can get you. Because you'll love one and hate the other, despise the other. And I think the, the, the Philistia represents a false worship from the history of God's people that we need to pay attention to. The southern portion of Israel where Judah was, um, had a, a particular problem with the Philistines. Remember Goliath? And it's always had issues with him. But then David goes over before he's king. When Saul is still king, he's making treaties with uh, the Philistines, even fighting his own people on their side. 
They were a constant pester to Israel, but they were also willing to enter into agreements with Israel. These agreements led Israel, uh, being led off to worship false gods and the desire to secure rain for their crops. Their, their god was um, Dagon, which was a merman. He had a, the, the torso and head of a man, but he had a fish tail. But that was to secure his fertility. We need, we need rain, and we need the rain to be provided so we can have crops. Remember what, in a battle, they, uh, Israel took the Ark of the Covenant and led it out as if it would be to them what, what God did at Jericho. But they didn't, they didn't fight with worship then. They, they tried to use it as a trinket and a superstition uh, takeover, superstitious takeover of the Philistines. Philistines got it and brought it into their, their side. I actually put it in there. Remember, they put it in the temple with Dagon, and day after day, three days, he's down, and then finally his head's cut off, and they're like, we've got to get this thing out of here. The Philistines were a spiritual trap for Israel. And I think we also need to be aware of our own spiritual traps that cause us to live for God out of superstition rather than, tr- than pure devotion, like we looked at from chapter 7. Now, the next two, cha- two verses, we have all these things about the enemies, but here, don't look to them. Here's where you need to look. God's telling his people, look to your coming king, because he's coming. And here's, what he's gonna, he's, here's who he is. Here's what he's going to look like. Best way to secure pure devotion is to look for the true king. It's the same one that's promised in the night vision. The king God pointed to was a different king that didn't carry himself like other kings. He would have a different look, a different looking kingdom, a different looking reign, because his kingdom would not be of this world. God gave clues as to what the king would look like. The first one is that he would be righteous. He would be a king of righteousness, not wicked and wandering like so many other kings that Israel and Judah had seen. His righteousness would be otherworldly, holy, other than anything they knew. This king would have salvation. And the way this is written in the original language reveals that the king would himself need salvation. And I think it points to Jesus' work done by us because God needed to deliver him from death. The Messiah would be delivered from death. We see this fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead. The life he rose with, he then gives to his people as king. He was granted that life by by God calling him out and back from death by the Spirit's power. And then that's the life, that's the having salvation. He's experienced it and he gives it to everybody else. He will be righteous, he will have salvation, and he will be humble. It was not an attribute, a kingly attribute for anybody then. This king would not follow the course of so many kings who grow in power. The phrase absolute power corrupts absolutely. Every king that's got power then seeks to keep the power by tightening his power over his people. Not this king. The king God promised would be a humble king. Rather than puffing him up, it would bring him low. He would display his humility by riding on a donkey. That's not a handsome beast at all. We usually use donkey to describe somebody that we don't particularly like. But he comes donkey. Coming on a horse one day. He comes on a donkey first. The humility of this king would be so world-changing. 
that he's promised to remove even traditional fighting. He would not advance his kingdom on horseback or with chariots. Look at that, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He's taking the traditional. This king doesn't fight like other kings. What does he fight with? He shall speak peace to the nations. He fights with peace. Now, he doesn't fight with peace treaties. He fights with a peace that, that occupies the hearts of his people and then spreads like wildfire to others. He would not advance his kingdom on horseback or with chariots or with traditional weapons. Peace, the peace of his reign extends into the hearts of his people. And then verses 11 through 13, in verses 9 and 10, we saw who the king would be. In verses 11 through 13, we see how the king will be, how he will rule and reign in his kingdom. And interestingly, at first, uh, in verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you. This is huge. How will he reign? With a blood covenant. Now, blood covenants were common in ancient history. They were ratified when an animal was cut in two like this, and they were put uh, over against one another. And the people walking into that covenant agreement would walk arm in arm, and they would actually do a figure eight, an infinity sign, in between the dead, the, the carcass that was there. And they were saying, this is an agreement that only death can separate. And we see that tradition kind of in, in the marriage um, promise uh, that we do when we walk down the aisle. Typically, the bride sides on one side and the groom sides on the other. But we have symbolism there. But we say, till death do us part. It's a covenant. God points to a different kind of covenant in verse 11. He said it was the, cov- the blood of his covenant. It wasn't a man-made covenant. This is a covenant similar to what God did with Abraham when he had Abraham fall asleep in the smoking fire pot and the torch walk through and make the covenant. God, this would be a God-wrought covenant written with the blood of his son. And since his son's blood is eternal, his covenant with his people is eternal. Now, this is really cool. Catch this. We don't have to fear the covenant being broken. Why? Because death, started the covenant. We don't have to fear a death that will break this covenant because the the covenant was inaugurated and ratified with a death, and it was the death of Jesus. So we have security in this blood covenant. No one else needs to die. That's why death from this life is a pass-through to the next in heaven. Now this, this humble king would also set prisoners free. It's a common element of the Messiah's work that we see in the prophets. But do we really understand what it means? We don't live, we don't have to live in prison to ourselves and our own condemning thoughts, our own depression, our own anxieties. We don't have to live in prison to our past and our past mistakes that we just can't seem to get out from out under And we don't have to live in prison to anybody else in our lives. The prison is described as a waterless pit. That's what's full of anxieties and fears and sorrows and hopeless despair. Through the king, we can escape the waterless pit and run again to the fountain of living waters. Now, Jesus promised in John 7 that these waters would come from within us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we turn the spigot 
of those living waters on by reading God's word so the spirit can exalt Jesus in it. And then this king would change the weapons of warfare forever. Having taken away the traditional weapons of warfare, this Messiah king will fight and advance his kingdom with his weapons, which are what? His people. Look at verse 13. For I have bent Judah as the bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. Judah was the understanding of the southern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim was the name given to the northern kingdom. But God is saying, I'm bringing what has been separated, I'm bringing it back together. And with that unity and that God-glorifying exaltation, that's how God extends and advances his kingdom into the hearts of his people. It will be a unification, a fellowship with one another. Their fellowship then would be wielded as a warrior sword. This is a critical reminder of our need for fellowship in the body of Christ. If we are suffocating spiritually or continuing to find ourselves in that waterless pit, we need to pursue one another so we can experience the victory that Christ has for us with us. An indication that Zechariah is prophesying again about Alexander the Great is the reference in verse 13 to Greece. When, when Alexander the Great came over to Jerusalem, he, did, he didn't annihilate Jerusalem. He actually went in and made a sacrifice to the one true God. God protected his people. Now, fellowship helps us fight spiritual battles. For Amber's testimony last week, if you weren't here for that, please ask her. She can email it to you. She wrote it out. Uh, a great testimony of how the body of Christ serves one another. We, we serve each other to rescue and, and overcome. So if we want to, we want to fight spiritually, here's, here's the three categories we need to make priorities. One, Bible reading. Two, sitting under the preaching of God's word. Three, fellowship with the people of God. These are priorities for our spiritual growth, but also priorities for our spiritual protection. You know, God always lets you know what he's going to be doing. When you're reading his word, you have some sense, hmm, I think something's coming, and God's preparing you for it. You're with other people, and, you, and you're praying together. And you're, okay, we have, we have community groups for this purpose. And as members of the church, if you are a covenant member of this church, part of the agreement that you said was, I will be fellowshipping with the church. This past week, the groups were way unattended. We need to adjust that because we need to be fellowshipping with one another. Amen? We need to be doing that. Now, the last section of the passage, verses 14 through 17, are now the king will appear, and this is a, a nuanced way of saying he's coming again. He came to do his first work as king, and as he's exalted as king, he will come again on that white horse. Voice caught up to me. All right. As we've seen all through this, God's announcing Jesus to the world, and he's also announcing Jesus uh, to his people to be looking for him. And we see this connection with the lightning and the trumpets. This is cool. We, we link verse 14 together with New Testament texts that tell Jesus of Jesus' second and final coming. And the keys are in those lightnings and trumpets. Look at Luke 17. Jesus said, for as the lightning flashes and lights up, from the, 
lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Matthew 24, Jesus said, and he, sent, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and shall be changed. First, that the, that, don't pick on the guy that had mouth surgery. First Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. What a day that will be. Now, I, the Rosh Hashanah is the last, it's usually in September, it's the last feast that Jesus has not fulfilled. You know what that feast is? The Feast of Trumpets. So I do think Jesus is going to return on Rosh Hashanah this year. hope so. I like to freak people out. When I'm teaching over at North Lake, I tell them that, and they'll start looking at me. You mean, you mean like in, in a week? In a week? Jesus come back in a week? Well, are you ready for it? Now, I, I do think there's some other things that need to happen in, particularly in Jerusalem with the temple before that happens. So I think we have a little while, but... Maranatha, oh Lord Jesus. Now, if we're thinking, and I also like to tell this to the teenagers, if we think that if Jesus comes back and we haven't experienced things on earth yet, marriage, having kids. I remember when I was in high school growing up as a, as a Christian, I would ask God, please don't come back until I'm married and have kids because I want to have that pleasure. I want to have that joy. But then I realized, if I think that going to heaven is going to be the reduction of joy, I don't understand heaven. Because heaven is everything greater than we can ever imagine. And every, every pleasure we can imagine on this earth. He's greater. He will stretch out in the whirlwinds, just like chapter 1 told us, and he will call his people to himself. There will be final victory when he comes again. Church, final victory. You know when you, when you watch a recorded game, and maybe you're that type of person that doesn't like to hear the ending? But somebody comes in and tells you the ending, oh, so-and-so won, the Saints won. You, you, you're watching that game is completely different from that point on. You see a sack, an interception, like, no, we're going to win the game. Your response to what's happening in the present is different because you know the end. We know the end. Jesus wins. He's the glorious one that wins, and it should have an effect today on how we live because we can live peaceable, not freaked out. There's nothing, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from his love. We wait for a sure and final victory, but we feel that victory every day as we look to the Savior and experience his love. We can live under the mighty roar of God, having drunk of his living waters that never, ever run dry. We experience God's love and conquer by drinking in his living waters. And then the effect of joy is how the... the spilling over of heaven into today. The reference there in verse 16 of like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. These jewels of a crown reveal God, how God feels about his children. You know, oftentimes I think we are more in touch with our sense of God's seriousness about our salvation than we are affected by his smiling over us because of our salvation. 
he brought it about. And he's happy with us. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings loudly over us. It's not some out-of-tune, pitchy, weird, embarrassing song. Oh, it's the most glorious, beautiful song we could have ever, ever come across. Oh, that song, Refuge. Matt and Mark wrote that. They served us again with another beautiful song. Amen. Our identity, listen, our identity is not in our fruitfulness for God. Our identity is in his joy in saving us. That's how we respond and say, you're good and you're beautiful, God. Let that wash over us today. His pleasure in us extends then to his provision for us. He gives grain. So we don't have to go searching the wrong places for that success and the provision. He gives us new wine, a new covenant that will never, ever be broken. Psalm 4, verse 7, King David said, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The grain and wine abounding was a a representation of a fruitful harvest. It was a great year, is what everybody would say at harvest time. So we have so much extra that we're going to eat all the bread we want. We're going to drink all the wine because it's beautiful. We're going to celebrate. Listen, we have celebration for us because we have, we're going to transition to our communion time. We have a bread in Jesus that always satisfies us. And we have a new wine of his covenant that he's waiting one day to drink with us. And when he comes back and he gathers us to himself and he sits us around this enormous table, And we just feast and rejoice. What a day it will be. We celebrate the new covenant established by Christ's blood. We celebrate that. So this this meal doesn't have to be a somber thing. There are moments that it needs to be somber. But today it's celebratory. We we are celebrating the, the resurrection of Jesus. And we're celebrating his new covenant. The security and peace that it brings to us. Do we have to examine? Yes. Scripture wants, we need to examine our hearts. If there's any, any bitterness going on, repent. If there's any sinful activity happening, repent and celebrate. All right, let's come down the middle. You can get the elements and return to your seats. And we'll take the elements together.